Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, we're glad you're here today. If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn in them in the book of Acts in the New Testament to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could grab that Bible and turn in the back part to page 94, and you would be at Acts chapter 4. You know, it has been more than a quarter of a century now, might be surprising to you to think that, since the movie Back to the Future came out in 1985. You remember the movie? Which chronicles the adventures of Marty and Doc Brown as Marty goes from 1985 back to 1955. And there was an interesting song that's part of that movie written by Huey Lewis entitled Back in Time. There you go. Little add in. Thank you, Greg. Part of the, I didn't know that was going to happen, so that's really great. <laughs> Part of the lyrics of his song says, I got to get back in time. Get me back in time. Well, I don't know if you thought of it that way, but that's exactly what we've been doing in our series that we've entitled Seeds, and we've been studying the book of Acts. We've been going back in time. We've been going back to look at the church that was first planted by Jesus. We're going back to look at this church that God gives birth to as his new instrument to reach the world. And as we are in this study, there are lessons for us, practical lessons that we can learn. I don't know if you've thought of it this way, but it's really, really true. There is in the Christian world out there, I don't know really where this started, but there's this common assumption out there that when you come to know Jesus, when you begin to live your Christian life, if you're walking with God, everything's going to be easy and smooth. You know, your life will be without conflict, without trouble, and without difficulty. Well, that's one of the reasons why we need to go back in time, because we learn from Acts chapter 4 that that's not true. The church just gets started, and we see trouble and conflict. And I've titled the message today, The Gospel Opposed, Part 1, The World. Because the world is going to oppose what we believe and what we do. And how are we to respond to that? What do we really need to have as our understanding as we face those things? Now, I've, I've set up the flow of chapter 4 in this way. Number 1, we're going to see the arrest of Peter and John in verses 1 to 4. And then we're going to see the inquisition against them in verses 5 to 22. And then there's the disciples' reaction to this inquisition in verses 23 to 31. I just want to remind you as we move into this chapter now that the issue that we're talking about is the issue of resistance from the world, resistance to the church, resistance to the gospel message, and our need when we face that, and we will face that. Our need is perspective about God, and our need is boldness in proclaiming the gospel message. Now, if you haven't been with us on our study, I want to remind you of what happened in chapter 3. In chapter 3, we have a man who was born lame from his mother's womb, and he's now 40-plus years of age. And every day, he has people who carry him to the gate of the temple in order to beg money. And 
he meets a gaze with Peter and John, and in verse 6, Peter says to this man, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And this event, as he is healed, everyone knew who he was, begins to attract a crowd, and so Peter begins to speak to the crowd, and in verse 19 of chapter 3, he says to them, you need to repent so that your sins can be wiped away. Now, he's still interacting with the crowd as we come to chapter 4, and let's just read through the first four verses of chapter 4. As they, Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they, Peter and John, were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on Peter and John and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Now, as we see them being jumped on here in verse 1, we notice that the group that came along with the captain of the temple guard was the Sadducees. Sometimes we get a little confused because we know there's the Pharisees and then you have the Sadducees and who's who. Well, the Pharisees were the intellectuals of the day. But the Sadducees were a different group. They were the wealthy blue bloods. They were the group that collaborated with the Romans. They were, the Sadducees, rationalists. Um, they were the ones who in their theology wanted to eliminate the supernatural. We learn from Acts chapter 23 and verse 8 that the Sadducees did not believe in supernatural beings. That's just supernatural. We want to eliminate the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. Uh, They did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in any resurrection. They didn't believe that people could be raised from the dead because that would mean something supernatural happened. And so they thought there was no life after you died at all. We also know as we study the Sadducees that they thought the Messiah was an ideal, not actually a person. They believed that the answers to life's problems and the problems of humanity was ideas, not a person. And the Sadducees were like many people in our day. They just want to eliminate the supernatural. And they think the answers to humanity's problems are ideas, not a person. So the Sadducees were religious, yes, but they were very lost. So they come along with the captain of the temple guard. Temple guard captain was number two in rank, to the high priest himself. And you notice that they come and they're greatly disturbed because Peter and John were doing two things. Number one, they were teaching the people and that was a threat to their position in society. They didn't like that. And the second thing they were doing is they were proclaiming the resurrection, which was a threat to the Sadducees' personal belief system. Now, have you noticed how much in these first few chapters of Acts that the resurrection of Jesus is prominent. It was very prominent for the apostles, and it is prominent for us. Why is it so prominent? 
Well, I think there's at least four reasons why the resurrection of Jesus is prominent. The resurrection of Jesus validates that Jesus was the Son of God, that he is the Son of God. It's the resurrection of Jesus that confirms that he is alive and active today. It is the resurrection of Jesus that proves his sacrifice for sin was fully sufficient. And it was his resurrection that guarantees that we can conquer death too. And that's why it's so prominent for the apostles and why it needs to be prominent in our communication with people. Now, what is really interesting is, is they lay hands on them. They decide to put them in jail, verse 3, till the next day because it was already evening. It was just a little too late to call together a judicial hearing. And so I think they were thinking, hey, a night in the pokey, maybe these guys will come to their senses the next day and they'll recant. But the good news in all of this is even as they end up in jail, Verse 4 is that 5,000 men trusted in Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, as their rescuer from sin and judgment. Well, the next thing is the inquisition that begins in verse 5, and it's down through verse 22. Notice verse 5 says, On the next day, the rulers, the elders, the scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. Now, this is referring to what was called the council or the Sanhedrin. And it meets the next day. And we learn from Luke here that Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, all who were of high priestly descent. Now, I just want to pause for a moment here for there's some things we need to understand about what was happening in that day that's so critical. You know, when the Jews would appoint a high priest, they would appoint a high priest for their lifetime you would be high priest until you died. But remember, the Romans were really in charge. And so the Romans came along when Annas was the high priest and they decided to depose him years before this as high priest. And at this time, even at the time of the trial of Jesus, Caiaphas was actually the high priest. Now what's interesting is that Caiaphas is the son-in-law of Annas. In other words, Caiaphas married Annas's daughter. And what had really happened at this time in history is that the high priesthood had corrupted into an inbred family deal. And not only was Annas's son-in-law the high priest, but eventually five of his sons and his grandson also became high priest in Israel. Now, I tell you all that just to realize that Annas isn't technically the high priest, but he really is the high priest. He is in religious power. He's actually the one who interviewed Jesus. And so while Caiaphas is technically there, really Annas is the puppet master behind the scenes. And so when this um, conveying together of the council occurs, Annas is there. And verse 7, it says that it takes Peter and John, and apparently we have, according to verse 10, the healed guy there too, and they're put in the center of this semicircle. And then in verse 7, they ask this question of them. By what power or in what name have you done this? Now, I want you to look at that question for a moment. Do you see that that is a control question? It's not a truth question. They're asking a control question. 
we're in control here. We're the religious establishment. So by what power or in what name have you done this because you didn't get permission from us? Now, what's interesting is that Jesus had warned the apostles that this kind of thing would happen. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 18 to 20, Jesus had said to them this regarding the future. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake and as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say, for it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your Father who speaks in you. What had Jesus been teaching them? Opposition is to be expected. And that was true not only in that day, it's true in our day. We ought to expect opposition to the gospel message. Well, notice Peter's reply in verses 8 to 12. You can follow along. I'm going to just read it. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands before you here and in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, what is Peter's response to them? It's something like this. All right, let me get this straight. We are on trial for helping a crippled guy for life now walk? I mean, good Lord, where is that going to lead? You know, to more people being healed, that would be horrible. And then he reverses it back on them there in verse 10. He says, I just want you to know that it's by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the one that you crucified, but the one that God raised from the dead. He is the one who made this man well. Now, are you catching what's really odd? Who's doing this? Who just said that? Peter. What do we know about Peter? What do we see of Peter in the Gospels? We see someone who continually put his foot in his mouth. We see someone who three times, even swearing with swear words that it was true, denied three times that he'd ever even met this guy named Jesus the Nazarene. And now we see him here in Acts chapter 4, and we're going, what in the world happened to Peter? Well, remember, several things have happened to Peter. One is, remember how we saw early in our study that Jesus had taught the apostles the scriptures? How multiple times he'd been instructing them in the word of God. And when you have the word of God and you understand what the Bible has to say, what does it do? It breeds confidence. It breeds boldness. And not only that, we saw beginning in Acts chapter 2 that he was filled with the Spirit. It even says that again in verse 8. The filling of the Spirit 
brought some confidence in his life. The life of Jesus was living inside of Peter. And in verse 11, he quotes from Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 was part of a package of psalms, a half a dozen of them, that they would sing at every major festival in Israel. And remember, it had just been the festival of Pentecost. And so he's quoting from a verse that they just heard sung in the temple. And he talks about the idea of a stone here. And and the term that he uses could refer to a capstone, which goes at the top or the finish of something, or it could refer to a cornerstone from which you begin to build something. And it seems to me that what Peter is saying to them is this. You rejected the capstone, what could have been the capstone of Israel, which was the Messiah. He could have put a capstone on the kingdom for Israel, but you rejected him, and now he's become a cornerstone of a new work that he is doing. We read earlier from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 7, that talks about Jesus being the cornerstone. But he doesn't stop there. He gives us verse 12. Look at that again. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And you know, you say that kind of a verse out loud today, and people say, well, that sure sounds intolerant. That is terribly intolerant. There's salvation in no one else but Jesus And there's no other name under all of heaven, no matter all the names there may be, that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You know, one of the reasons why the world responds that way is that the world has developed this elaborate buffet. It's an elaborate buffet of pathways to God. Oh, there's this whole, you just choose your one pathway that you want and you get to God. It could be the pathway of Buddha, it could be the pathway of Muhammad, it could be the pathway of Jesus, it could be the pathway of Krishna. Just pick your pathway and you get there. That's not what Peter says. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name. And what he says here perfectly dovetails with what Jesus said regarding himself in John chapter 14 and verse 6, when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one, how many are included in that group? No one comes to the Father except through me. It dovetails perfectly what Paul wrote to 1 Timothy in chapter 2 and verse 5 when he said, there is one mediator between God and men and that one mediator is the man Christ Jesus. And while this may sound intolerant to some, in reality, guess what? It's simply truthful. Now, why is it truthful? Because no one else was resurrected from the dead. It is truthful because nobody else paid for all the sins of the world. It is truthful because nobody else solved the problem of death. Only Jesus did that. There is no one else because he is the only one who can offer to men and women a new heart and a new life. 
I've shared this many times at Wildwood. You could take all the religious systems of the world and they only fall into two categories. You have all the religious systems out here and then you have one unique one which is biblical Christianity. And all these various religious systems all spell salvation the same way they spell it do, D-O. There's something that you must do in order to be acceptable to God. Now, they may redefine the do in different ways, but their message is all the same. You must do something. Biblical Christianity is completely unique. It spells salvation done, D-O-N-E. It's not what we do that makes us acceptable to God. It's what Jesus Christ has already done and accomplished. And that's why it may sound intolerant, but it's simply truthful. And the good news that you have in verse 12 for anyone who is a human being is that rescue is available. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that we are on a cruise ship, all right? Can you do that with me? Some of you are thinking I'm already getting hungry. Cruise ship buffets, sounds pretty good. Don't go all the way there, but just imagine for a moment that we're on a cruise ship, all right? Are you there with me? We're there with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other people. Now, we're on this cruise ship, and the word comes, the cruise ship is sinking. But it also goes on to say that our only hope to be rescued are in the lifeboats that are here. The only hope we have is the lifeboat. Now picture we're there on the cruise ship, it's sinking, we're told that our only hope is in the lifeboat, and we notice there's a group of people there, and they are whining, they are complaining, they are protesting that there's only one way to be rescued. And they're sitting there thinking, you know what, this, this just isn't right, this just isn't fair that there's one way on the lifeboat. I think there should be another way. I think there should be a way like a helicopter should fly in from a land base and then put that harness down and pick each one of us up and that should carry us back to safety. I think there should be another way like that. And someone else goes, no, I think there should even be another way. I don't like the fact that there's one way. I think what we ought to do is we ought to have these cannons on board and sort of like a circus clown, you get into the cannon and it just goes boom, you know, and shoots you back to land. There ought to be a way like that. And someone else goes, oh, that's even too complicated. I, I don't like that there's just one way. I think what we ought to do is we ought to be like Star Trek, you know, beam me up, Scotty. And we're just beamed up and suddenly, boom, there we are on dry land. Now, can you imagine that kind of thing happening? And what you want to say to them, listen, the good news is that rescue is available. That's the good news. The lame man had a physical need and Jesus made him whole. And all men and women, we have a spiritual need and Jesus can make us whole. He is the only lifeboat. Now, it's interesting, in verses 13 and following, these guys in the Sanhedrin were observing the confidence of Peter and John and understood that it says they were uneducated and untrained. What do they mean by that? Well, uneducated just means they were without rabbinic training. They hadn't been through these rabbinic schools. And they were untrained meaning they were just ordinary, everyday folks. Really what they're saying is, what are these guys doing? Quoting scripture to us. <laughs> we're the religious authorities. 
And so it's interesting what happens in verse 15. It says, they ordered them, Peter and John, to leave the council, and they began to confer with one another. They begin to have this little discussion. Peter and John are now outside. What are we going to do with these guys? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We cannot deny that, but we don't want them spreading this. So let's warn them not to speak any longer to any man in this name. Now, not about you, but when I'm going through Bible study, I find a little part of this rather fascinating to me because Peter and John are put outside, the door is closed, and then the Sanhedrin's having this conversation, and my question is, who told Luke what was going on behind closed doors? Remember, Luke was a researcher, he interviewed the eyewitnesses. How does he know about this conversation? And and I don't really know the answer to that for sure, but it appears that someone who was in the Sanhedrin told him about this conversation. You know, Luke tells us in his gospel in chapter 23, verse 50, he mentions this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. You remember that guy who took the body of Jesus and had it buried? It tells us there that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. It's possible it was Joseph of Arimathea that gave him the insight about what this inside discussion was all about. So, let's warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name, verse 17. And so they summoned them back into the room and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, I want you to notice something about all of these proceedings. Have you noticed how it was not focused on truth? I mean, they're really not trying to wrestle with truth. In fact, they're doing what Paul said the world would always do, and that's in Romans 1.18 when it says the world suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. The world wants to push the truth down because the truth reflects back on me. It makes an appraisal of me. And so the gospel is opposed by the world, and at times that opposition is found in organized religion. Now, I want to take a moment, just a moment, and and talk about the contrast between religion and the gospel. They're very, very different. Religion is man's attempts to reach God. And the aim of religion is to be good enough. And that tends to be frustrating and discouraging because I can't be good enough. And the key in religion is to conform, is conforming to rules. That's what religion is all about. The gospel is very different from that. The gospel is God reaching down to man. And when it comes to goodness, goodness is ultimately found in the God-man, Jesus. And the gospel leads to peace and joy. And the key in the gospel is to be transformed by the power of God. Very different. And we're going to see here, I'm going to help just lay this out for us, that another contrast, and that contrast is between institutional religion and what I'm calling the transformational church. And you don't have to write all this stuff down. We have a PDF that's going to be on the city and on the website this afternoon so you can get all this, but I want you to see this. This is what institutional religion is like. 
Number one, it compromises with the world out of desire for respect from the elite and those in power. That's exactly what we see happening here in Acts 4. When presented with, number two, with new ideas or challenges, it first asks, how will people react weighing political consequences over truth? Institutional religion, number three, creates a super spiritual clergy class and takes ministry away from the perceived common people. We see that right here. Number four, it over-embraces tradition, arrogantly asserting there is little or no need to re-examine scripture. Do they ever want to get into a real deep scripture discussion? Not at all. Institutional religion, number five, possesses money and political influence, but not a message or power from the spirit that can transform lives. That's the problem with institutional religion. But it's very different from what I'm calling the transformational church. Notice the contrast. The transformational church, number one, calls everyone to repentance without concern for the opinion of the elite or powerful. Number two, when presented with new ideas or challenges, the transformational church first asks, how can this advance God's mission desiring to be led by the Spirit? Number three, it seeks to empower people for ministry, emphasizing the priesthood of all believers. Number four, the transformational church is not reluctant to re-examine scripture when it faces issues or problems and then make appropriate changes. And number five, it emphasizes the compelling message of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to change lives. What we see is a huge contrast between the two right here in Acts chapter four. Now let your eyes go down to verses 19 and 20 because we see the response that Peter and John give. They answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. What characterizes that response? It's the B word, boldness. We see it oozing from Peter and John. I read a story that came out of the 1830s. It's a story that occurred when Andrew Jackson was president of the United States. And Peter Cartwright was a circuit-riding Methodist preacher in the state of Illinois. He was an uncompromising guy. He had actually come north from Tennessee because of his opposition to slavery. And one Sunday morning, when he was scheduled to preach, his deacons came up to him and told him that President Andrew Jackson was in the congregation that day. And these deacons knew that Pastor Cartwright was really used to saying whatever he felt God wanted him to say, regardless of how people might react. And they were warning him, you know, let's not say something that might offend the chief executive. And so when Pastor Cartwright got up to preach, this is what he said. I understand President Andrew Jackson is here. I have been requested to be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he does not repent. <laughs> wow, you know. The audience was shocked. The deacons were wondering how the president would respond to that. But after the service, Andrew Jackson came up to Pastor Cartwright and said this to him, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. 
so important that we have boldness. See, men and women, we have the message of life and hope. And even when there's resistance and opposition from the world, we need to be bold in sharing about Jesus Christ. Well, we learn from verse 21, they had no basis to actually punish them, so they released them. And that leads to the disciples' reaction in verses 23 down through verse 31. What happens is they go back to their fellow believers, the rest of the apostles and the other believers who'd come to believe in Jesus. Now, why do they do that? They go back and they relate to them everything that's been happening. Because there's strength in the Christian family together. That's why God makes us a family. And so they go back and they share everything that had been happening. And what's interesting is they just spontaneously break into prayer. And we're not going to break down all the issues related to their prayer and look at every verse. I just think there's two things that jump out at me about their prayer. Number one is that they acknowledge God as God and they acknowledge God's sovereignty in this situation. We see that in verse 24 and 28. When the disciples heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord, and they said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in it. You are God. You are fully God. And then in verse 28, they talk about how, God, that you had done whatever your hand and whatever your purpose had predestined to occur. You know, they're getting this opposition and this pressure, and they're saying as they pray to God, God, you made everything, you control everything, you have a purpose in everything. And that kind of an attitude, men and women, is critical when there's opposition and resistance from the world. The second thing they did that stands out to me is their petition for boldness. Even in light of everything that's happened, they asked God for boldness. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, with all boldness. They're saying, we're getting criticized, we're getting opposed. Please, God, don't let us go silent. And it's so easy to do that when the world is opposing us to go silent. And do you see God's response to this prayer? Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. This is a prayer that God loves to answer. God, give me boldness. When's the last time you prayed a prayer like that? See, this ought to be coming out of our mouth all of the time. God, give us the boldness to not go silent. Now, as we always do with Scripture, we like to look at some life response that we believe. But what we've examined today is, gives us ways that we can actually respond to the truth that we've seen. I'm going to give you three this morning. First life response is this. Don't be surprised don't be surprised. The world will oppose us. We're not going to win the popularity contest. It's going to oppose us. And in some places right now in this world, that can mean jail or even death. In some places, being opposed means that we're going to be misunderstood. We're going to be mislabeled. We're going to be dismissed as being out of touch. 
We might even be ridiculed. We might even be ostracized. But don't be surprised when that happens. Second life response we can have to what we looked at today is that we can live more boldly. When's the last time you even thought about doing that? Isn't it easy how we get into these ruts and we just are in cruise control? One thing we can do is to live more boldly. What does that really mean? I don't know what that means. You need to pray that to God and ask him to show you what it means for you. Maybe it means that you, you start to volunteer for a local organization. That's a way you can live more boldly. Maybe it means that you just share your relationship. You talk about Jesus more with your coworkers or with your fellow students at school. You just talk about Jesus. Maybe that's the way you live more boldly. Maybe you choose to house and exchange students, someone who's come from this country from a foreign land. Maybe it means that you adopt a child or you help support adoption of children. Maybe it means to live more boldly that you take a vacation with purpose, that you go on a mission trip, for example. The mission trip we're going to have this next June when we go back to Latvia and to Tulsi Christian School and we, we put on an, a camp for orphans for a week. Live more boldly. Ask the Lord to show you what that means in your life. And then the third, third life response is to turn to the Lord Jesus. Again, I don't know where everybody's coming from, but the good news is that rescue is available and Jesus is the lifeboat. Jesus is ready to make you whole. Maybe you're here, I don't know what your situation is. Maybe you're just tired of religion. You're just weary of trying to be good enough. You're just tired of trying to keep the rules. You don't have to. You can turn to the Lord Jesus. John, the same one we see here in Acts chapter 4, in his first letter, chapter 5, verse 12, said this, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. And God wants you to have life. Let's pray together. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and and to close us. Father, we thank you for the word. It's a living book. It speaks to us as the Holy Spirit brings it into our heart. And we want to pray, Father, for any of you who are hearing this who do not know Jesus Christ personally, may they realize that rescue is available. It's found in the person of Christ. He came to this planet to bleed and to die for them, to take their penalty upon himself. And if they're tired of trying to be good enough, trying to keep the rules. They can have the Son and then have life by trusting in and believing that Jesus died for them and took their penalty. For all of us who know you, what a great opportunity we have to remember to worship you because of what Jesus has done for us. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen.